This is the Master of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom Jennings. And today we will be talking about Sidney Lumet's The Offence with you, James Marsh. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be back and to uh, talk to both of you again. Before we get on with the film, I thought we could talk briefly about some uh, sad news. A couple of people that have been lost to the cinematic world. Ron Benson, the founder and director of Eureka Entertainment, uh, he passed away on the 19th of October this year. And he apparently started a career as an electrician and then he moved on to... Uh, creating his own video rental business after reading an article in the Financial Times, creating uh, what was called the Mr. Benson's Video Collection. And uh, he then moved on to the mail order business of uh, Mr. Benson's World of Home Entertainment, which uh, later became Benson's World. Um, built a, he built a successful company with the main studios and different distributors, and then actually moved on to owning intellectual property like Eureka Entertainment. And it was probably one of the biggest figures in master cinema history. So very sad for Tahiri's passing. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a, a vast collection, a vast amount of my collection comes from Eureka. And I used to kind of, I mean, Benson's my video, I mean, I remember sort of like perusing that website a lot. So... Yeah, I think, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's obviously sad, but definitely the man's left a legacy, certainly in terms of my collection, I'm sure a lot of other people's outlets. Oh, yeah, indeed. No, I'm, I definitely remember Benson's World growing up in the UK. And then, uh, and like, yeah, like you said, I can't really add too much, but uh, we, I think we all benefit, and we wouldn't be sitting here talking to each other at all if it wasn't for, you know, Eureka Entertainment that he's set up and bringing all of these films, you know, restoring them, keep... Re- um, preserving them and keeping them readily available to such a wide audience so uh yeah my condolences go out obviously to everybody at eureka and uh anybody who knew him his his family and uh whomever Mm. they've actually set up a just giving page eureka as that as a tribute to ron um for his favorite charity the teenage cancer trust so um, we can uh, put a link in it in our show notes where you can make a donation in ron's memory so Another big figure that has uh, been uh, lost to us is Philip French, the uh, writer for The Observer. Uh, And he was always a great supporter for the Master Cinema series. Um, He highlighted on numerous occasions an MOC release uh, in his column, Classic DVD of the Week. So uh, I uh, I read this um, wonderful piece by Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian, um, Remembering French, that is uh, very worth reading. Yeah, I, I really like Philip French, actually. He was one of those, um, he had quite a sardonic take on films that he didn't like. And I just want to kind of dip into what he said about Man of Steel, which was a film that I spent an hour trashing on the 24 Frames <laughs> cast. And nothing I said comes close to this, which I, I could have just said, said this and be done with it and spared everyone an hour of my ranting, which was the film is a load of repetitive tosh featuring in every sequence of its 143 minutes more special effects than God used when he created the world. Longer <laughs> <laughs> than many a telephone directory. And I, I think that's sort of some, that's going to, when people can articulate awfulness that well and so succinctly, yeah, it's, it's a sad loss because uh, I, I, as I said, I regularly found him quite funny. And uh, he was one of those kind of, there's not many critics 
who I kind of make a point of reading, and he was certainly one of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my there's always been the observer in my household growing up for as long as I could care to remember, and uh, he was definitely my my dad's favourite critic. You know, ever, ever since I've moved away from home, and when I phone home these days, I my parents feel obliged to talk to me about what they've been to see at the cinema. I think they feel obliged to go to the <laughs> cinema now just so they have something to talk to me about. Um, but yeah, that's my dad would always bring up. Oh well, F- Philip French said this, and uh, so. And, and we, we would often disagree. And, and so my, I think my dad sort of just thought I was wrong most of the time. <laughs> but, so Philip French has always been the, the high watermark, which, um, you know, I, I will continue to strive to get somewhere close <laughs> to, but he will be uh, sadly missed indeed. Yeah. Also, um, before we started recording, uh, you talked about receiving the Imamura box set, James. And you had some uh, some issues <laughs> with the packaging, <laughs> yeah, no, which I, I thought say... would be interesting to share. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just received a copy of the Shoei Imamura box set this morning. Uh, and yes, it includes sort of five releases that have already been uh, available on sort of dual format from Master Cinema. But there was one of them, Vengeance is Mine, that I didn't have i had the criterion dvd and so I, it was never a priority for me to upgrade to that one and i also heard actually apparently the the transfer on that one isn't the greatest so anyway i thought this was a good opportunity to grab it pick it up complete that little gap in my collection and get the man vanishes as well but then when the when the package arrives today unlike let's say the mitsuguchi set where the uh the individual blu-rays in that box come in essentially the exact same packaging that they would if you were to buy them individually these ones don't these ones are in much slimmer they barely have an actual spine at all and most crucially of all they don't have spine numbers on them there are there are spine numbers on the front cover but there aren't any spine numbers on the spine and that drives my <laughs> drives me crazy, to be honest, <laughs> because the main reason I bought it was, yeah, just to fill these little slots of, of titles I don't have. Um, and now I might have to just go and buy those ones anyway. <laughs> just the, to... the, the, these, these are, I mean, these are, you can forget what's happening in Syria. These are the, <laughs> these are the pressing issues this of our is, time. Yeah, exactly. The, the box sets being numbered is a massive, massive thing. And like box sets that don't have the same font or the boxes are different sizes. Like I'm looking at my Game of Thrones box sets now. Oh. And after season, after season two, they're all different. And the yeah. season four is slimmer than the other ones. And it panics me when I look at it. <laughs> it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that, that alarming. You're like, me, how will really people is. know these are all part of the same TV show? You know, they just look nothing, <laughs> exactly. nothing and alike. I, and my, my other present nightmare that I'm having is my Disney films. The Fantasia box set, they're mm. all in order, you know, like, you know, the Disney classics and stuff like that. Yeah, my Fantasia, you've got Fantasia and Fantasia 2000. Yeah, what do you and do? they got different... Do I, do I separate them and put the box aside? Mm. You know, obviously, I'm the only one who has to look at this, but <laughs> it is a tra- it's, it's a big issue in my life. And I, I think I think if only studios and kind of distributors knew the panic... And, and the genuine trauma that's causes when they don't do, you know, they don't label things how we want them. You know, it's it is a it is a pressing issue. Sure. Yes, I do appreciate that that Islamic State do pose a threat to the order and stability of the world. But for God's sakes, label <laughs> things. Use the same fonts. Use the same boxes. Then we'll have more time to obsess over the really important right. matters in life, like I the economy have, and things. Yeah, I could have donated that 
29 quid or whatever I spent on the box set to to yeah the anti-ISIS league or whatever but rather than buying uh, let's be honest sort of four films or eight films that I already have you know? and now we'll have to buy again but um no I think it, you know they clearly understand it I mean otherwise they wouldn't bother uh putting spine numbers on these arbitrarily uh uh, ordered releases in the first place you know if there's one way to ensure that everybody buys everything is you put numbers on them you know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know? and then there will be a you know a good percentage of people like ourselves who are like oh shit i don't have number 34 what is it <laughs> it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what it is yeah. i'm gonna go buy it anyway um i'm so no, glad I'm... arrow doesn't do that yeah no i know exactly oh, God. No, they, they literally if, if arrow re-released everything in some sort of spine order I, i'd be like i'd probably i'd probably wake up in the night sweating like oh, God, i'm gonna have to go i'm you know i'm gonna have to start buying these yeah and it's like you're saying you know, it's like you know no matter what what no matter what it is mm. if they've got a number on it you know, I didn't. I didn't have tiny furniture from the Criterion Collection for a long time, and I was. I was like, God, do I have to buy this film? Yeah, Please that... don't make me buy them. Please don't make me buy it. And I could just see that gap on the shelf. I was like, Oh God, I have to buy it. <laughs> I have to actually spend money on this film. And it, yeah, they get you, and it, it works. It you does. Know, it absolutely works. And luckily, with Criterion, I've managed to step away, and mm. and just embrace the fact I will never own all of them. Mm. So, so, and I'm I'm way more selective, and I have more money to to buy, you know, multiple versions of uh, <laughs> it, the Insect Woman now. So, um, <laughs> which is which is great, but yeah, I mean uh, that that aside, you know, which is you know, it's a very real problem, but it is a very small problem at the same time. Uh, it looks like a fantastic set. Um, mm. You know, uh, you know, they are all or almost all of them going out of print very very soon. So this is a very very smart way of acquiring them all in a very affordable fashion and i think all the booklets come on pdfs on a separate disc as well which is smart because that's how i read my booklets most of the time anyway by pdf so that makes sense um so yeah if you don't have any of them or you don't have all of them or even if you do then uh <laughs> the the oh you know very affordable immemora box set is uh something to go in your uh christmas stocking it's uh it's yeah. a good one it's in the low 30s, isn't it, on Amazon, I think? It has it's gone up. 38 quid it is at the moment. Okay. Yeah, I it's think not I got too it. Bad. I got it for like about 20. It was 29, but because I don't pay VAT and shipping comes in at just under the same as VAT, so I got it for about 27 quid, which is a, a mm. steal. Yeah. Bloody tax exiles getting their <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, so let's get on with the uh, offence. Um, this is Sidney Lumet with James Bond himself, mm. fitting for the time that we're in now. And some of the more, some of the most interesting aspect about this film is just that it was made because when Connery agreed to do Diamonds Are Forever, he struck a deal with United Artists that they pledged to do two of his projects uh, of his own choosing, provided that they cost two million or less. Mm. And The Offence was the first one of these, made in England in the spring of 1972. And it, I think it cost right about 900,000 or something. And it was still a commercial failure. So United Artists, they pulled out of the deal. Um, and the next version, which was supposed to be a film version of Macbeth, 
uh, directed by Connery himself and never saw the light of day, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that's a bit of a bit of a tragedy that but yeah and i mean that is a, a big part of what um draw my drew my attention to this film in the first place actually mm. and uh i i realized when we because we were gonna actually record this about a month ago or something weren't we and then yeah i realized when, when it was pushed back i was like oh it could not be at a, at a more timely moment now because if <laughs> if this film is anything it is connery's sort of most desperate yeah. of attempts to distance himself from the james bond role that he had already quite publicly sort of decided just tried to distance himself from and t- sort of hated yeah. by this point you know and he came he came back for diamonds of forever like you said purely for the money and because they said they were going to finance a couple of films um i think I he would, got like did he get like 20 million for that film and donated it all to charity oh no he, yeah, i think it was I think, I think he got something i think it was something like 12 million or something 12 million. like that and okay. he gave it all he, yeah he gave it all away yeah and so we can't yeah i think we can forgive diamond we can forgive diamonds are forever oh definitely the basis <laughs> i think it was a lot less than that but i think it was a an unprecedented sum at the time i've got a feeling actually it was it was 1 million dollars ah. but it was but it was, and it was the first time it was i think it was the first time any, anybody had been uh paid that much for one role but yeah. it was yeah it was it was something like that and uh yeah he had already d- decided he hated the role and didn't want to do it but uh well, yeah when he got the opportunity to do this he had obviously worked with sydney lumet a couple of times already mm-hmm. and uh managed to convince him to come across to england and uh and make this one for him yeah. I mean, the, the good thing is well about this being a financial flop. He followed it up next with one of um, his greatest roles, which of course is Zed in Zardos. So oh, he was yeah. on a real kind of, so he was on a real commercial uh, kind of home runs. It really when he came. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the things actually. When I watched this, I was like, whenever I see Sean Connery in the seventies, I always think Zardos. But I just, I think I was like, when did when did he make Zardos? Like, oh yeah, he made it next. And I'm thinking, God, this is a man who does not want to be James Bond. Yeah, sure, he does not want a career anymore. <laughs> and uh yeah and it would be so for quite a long time i mean obviously yeah he continued to work quite solidly throughout the 70s but he really did nuke his uh his career quite spectacularly i don't think he had a proper hit i think the man who would be king did quite well but i think other than that it was only these ensembles like uh bridge too far or um murder on the orient express uh, also yeah. with sydney Lumet and things like that that actually were actually sort of financial successes with him in it. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until sometime in the 80s, I think. I want to say Never Say Never Again, actually, was the, the first time he had a proper, success, a proper success again on sort of his name alone, shall we say. Mm. I mean, it, must, it must be interesting, because I, mean, I, I always think, if you've played James Bond, you, you know, how can you kind of come, come to hate that character? Mm. It just seems kind of like, if, seeing it from the outside, you, know, you sort of think, how could you possibly kind of Get, get into that mindset and I, I guess it shows that as an actor how if you are just playing the same role over again and let's be honest I mean the, the Bond films are fairly formulaic they're not exactly sure. kind of they're, they're not kind of going in wildly different directions each time are they so you know to go back and actually just do something so blatantly for the money and obviously it's not 20 not 12 but 1 million yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know to, to, to be that kind of like openly mercenary about it and just say, I'm going to do this for the cash and then you know I might get some more films out of it obviously this being one mm. and it kind of it did show that when I when this film kind of started I did sort of pick up on the fact that you can see this is something probably was a passion project for him oh yeah I mean it's 
it's he's his his character here, Sergeant Johnson or whatever, is the most unlikable, sort of flawed, pretty detestable anti-hero you could you could wish for. And the very idea that people would go to this, go be attracted to this film because it's because James Bond's in it, you know, and to sit down, you can understand why it didn't make any money at all, and why uh, yeah. it, you know. I wouldn't. If he had been a sort of a lesser actor, it could have sort of ruined his career completely. I think because he was such a big name, he had the momentum to sort of continue, and like I said, became something of an ensemble player. But um, yeah, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't have conjured a a sort of a role less like James Bond if you had if you had sort of just plucked it out of nowhere than than mm. this character who is just reprehensible in in every possible way and. You know, yeah, we're talking about the end of the film, of course. So, um, you know, has no yeah. redemption whatsoever. No. Yeah. It, and, I mean, it, I, said, I said to you guys before we came on, I mean, I watched this in, in the perfect conditions, really. The weather yesterday was just horrific here. And it was, you know, you couldn't walk down the road without the rain, you know, making you kind of pull this god-awful face that people in England do as they walk. It's, it's this kind of look of resignation of, oh, for God's sake, this is it. And I came back and I sort of sat in my, sort of sat in my loft and put this on. And as soon as it started, I was like, oh, my God, it just <laughs> looks horrendous. And it was it's strange to me because, you know, I wonder why Sidney Lumet did this. Because you know, obviously I, I, I don't recall him doing many films outside of America. No. And, and, and it's like he's kind of bringing this eye to the film where so, sometimes obviously when kind of directors tip up in foreign countries, they think they, they kind of shoot for foreign audiences mm. like it's like whenever you see films you'll always see establishing shots of big ben or tower bridge or something like that and here it's, it's, they've taken the complete opposite approach it's just this could be it, it looks like where they filmed um a clockwork orange just before the apocalypse happened it's just <laughs> terrible awful rainy streets in these kind of you know 60s purpose-built estates where you kind of everyone just blends in and I was like oh god here we go yeah. and then by the time when Sean Connery appears I, I sort of thought I think I want this to be a Bond film because I, you know, <laughs> I, I need cheering up already and we're only five minutes into it yeah no, I remember the the opening of it particularly those opening sequences outside the school I mean I'm not oh. quite as old as this film but they certainly brought back pretty horrific memories of my early formative years in the UK <laughs> and just thinking oh God, now, yeah, no, you know, whenever I occasionally think, oh, maybe it'd be nice to go back to the UK for a while, I, you know, all no. I need to do is stick on the first of 20 minutes of this and I'll be like, oh, good God, no. Okay, you know, <laughs> I am, James, I am right fine. Now, uh, James, right now I'm looking out of my terraced house in my backyard. It couldn't be more northern and grim. The clouds have <laughs> waved the rain is beating on the windows. Don't come back for the love of God. But what this actually reminded me of was... When I, I seem to remember in the 80s, they used to show us these films that oh. were basically designed to scare the shit out of kids. Like, don't play with cars. Yes. You literally see like the mangled, crumpled bodies of children playing because they hadn't followed the green cost code. And there was one, and it was, do not talk to anyone who basically isn't your mum or dad yeah. <laughs> because these people are going to do things <laughs> to you that are going to be unspeakable and we're going to show, like, your socks in a field or something like that, then a man walking off doing a zipper. It was just oh. like, you would sit there like, going, oh my God, you know, Christ, That's the one where the, the kids get the, their Frisbee stuck up in the pylon yeah. and they climb up yeah, the yeah. pylon and get electrocuted. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> the, 
what they call public service films or something like that. Really. Yeah, you can actually buy them. The BFI put them out. That's right. Years, yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of the best box sets I've ever I've ever bought because you sat there watching. Thinking, now it's all it's all a bit kind of like you know a bit easier going. But these they're horrendous and the offence started like one of these films. I kept expecting like a sign saying "Don't talk to strangers" and you just see the girl walking off with, with that guy. And you're like, oh god, she obviously hasn't watched that film. No, you're like stranger <laughs> danger, stranger danger. You know, yeah. That was it. Yeah, stranger danger. <laughs> <laughs> As I was walking past, thought, this is what this is. It's going to be one. It's going to be a two-hour film <laughs> on why life is really bad, and that's what I. That that that's kind of it sets the tone perfectly. I think. Yeah, mm. and it's it's interesting because you you touched on it a minute ago that um, you know it, it's interesting that it was an American, an outsider who directed this because it doesn't feel like an outsider's view of the UK. It feels incredibly in tune with sort of the the British climate of the mm. time you know and it feels quintessentially british for good or mostly ill um and so it is you know incredibly shocking to to sort of see that that was by the director of you know what he he was just about to go and do serpico which could not be more of a sort of new york movie and mm. uh you know he just come off the back of things like had he just done the anderson tapes and things like that it is interesting like why he chose to go across the pond really to go to the uk because would it be like vastly different if it had been made in the states? I don't think you could make a film like this in the states. I don't, I don't think it would. Well, you could do, obviously, mm. you, but I don't think it would have the. Uh, There's something I, about the class system yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah I, very I, much I, so. I, I don't. It's one of those things where I hate to say this, but when you say something like, you know, "Let me people say like the, the location is a character." Yeah, I don't really like that phrase. It seems a bit stupid to me in a way. It's like, how can it be? But I think in this case, it, it is perfect like that because there is this kind of, for some reason, I always associate the 70s as being grey and miserable, mm. even though, as I say now, the world outside me is grey and miserable. It, it, has, <laughs> it obviously hasn't changed. It, I am literally watching the offence out my window. That's what it's like. But it's, it, it's one of those things where... For a film like this, with a material like this, it would it, it it works so well in this kind of you know the sixties and the seventies. It was all meant Britain was meant to be better. It was all everything was going to be great. You know, we've kind of come out of this kind of depression that we had post war, and everything was going to be perfect. And it wasn't. You know, the kind of the the estates that they had thrown up to kind of make this community cohesion and everyone would get on had just basically become awful places. You know, people weren't kind of mingling and that they were kind of they were, they were designed to build community and they didn't. They just seemed to kind of make people even go even more insular mm. in a way. And they kind of, I suppose, kind of sucked the soul out of a lot of places. And I think the offence taps into that perfectly where you have these kind of broken people walking around. You know, the police in this, I mean, they're not heroic, are they? You don't look at these people. They're just like a group of kind of bitter, twisted old men mm. who they just go down the pub and drink and, you know, they're just abusive to each other. And it's like this kind of country that's kind of lost its kind of morality or its kind of will to live in a way. And I think having it set in Britain during this time is perfect because I think the material and the location and the atmosphere all perfectly complement each other mm. to kind of make for this completely oppressively grim journey into a very dark side of a human being. Mm. Also at a time where, the you know, when the British police were you know coming under scrutiny for sort of the first time really but uh you know and they, and they were 
would continue to be sort of investigated by the sort of general public and persecuted by the general public for you know, throughout the sort of the 70s and 80s and be- become increasingly sort of criticised. This was kind of a nice sort of entry point into that where, like you say, even the good cops are just, you know, there's nothing likeable or redeemable. There's nothing, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? There's, there's, there aren't any positive role models. Within, no. within within the police force here. In fact, within the film completely. I mean, you you certainly don't sympathise with Baxter. You know, no. he just he comes across as snivelling and uh, mocking, and uh, you know he's he's obviously slightly better educated and you know more of a middle class kind of guy than Johnson. And as soon as he realises or works out the kind of character that Johnson is, he you know, just proceeds to ridicule him knowing that it's going to, that with every sort of punch and kick that he's going to receive, he's kind of winning the moral high ground, even Mm. if that is a very dangerous place to be standing. And, um, you know, and then you see, you've got Terrence Howard's character who's supposed to be kind of the establishment, you know, and this is again, you know, these are the educated, this is kind of the, the upper class, if you like, of, of, of the, of the UK at the time. And uh, you know he's he's no better really. He's just like a stickler, sort of a stickler for the rules. And he's like, well, if you're not going to do it the way the way that we want you to, then we've just got to kind of get rid of you, sweep you out, sweep you under the carpet. You're just sort of an embarrassment to us, really. Mm. And um, but I don't know. I think one of my favourite scenes actually. I mean, because we should talk about this, the structure of the film because that's actually very interesting. But one of my favourite scenes is actually when he's at home. When he goes home and he's talking, talking to his wife. That's a very, very, very nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, shouting, screaming, shoving, um, drinking an entire bottle of whiskey while, <laughs> while while doing so. You know, this is supposed to be, uh, as you were saying, Tom, uh, the, the the sort of sense of community, the sense of home, which they were really trying to sort of promote at that time. This is the the only glimpse of that that we get. I mean, you never see the parents of any of the missing children or, you know, no. what their home life was like or anything like that. This is the only home you see and it's awful, you know, <laughs> in every possible way yeah. with all these like frosted glass windows in the doors and in the cabinets and everything. And it's a place of hostility and it's a place of emotional detachment and um, rampant, misogyny and alcoholism and and just you know it's it seems to be the breeding ground for this monster that he has become you know rather than all the the crime and filth that he has been subjected to on the streets it's like this this is where he brings it all home and and it all just like festers yeah it's i mean i i I mean many years ago i went to where like you know clockwork orange was filmed um, down in London, and it was uh, it was a Sunday, and it was absolutely throwing it down. And you're walking around, and it, it was just these tiny like windows where you could, you could see people were in, but there was just no kind of you got the impression no one ever wanted to leave because it was just so miserable and bleak. And you, you can see, like, say how it festers away. You just kind of like in these kind of little pokey little flats with nothing to do really, just kind of getting more kind of bitter and twisted and there's that when he kind of goes off to the police the camera kind of pans up and shows her 
I think it shows his apartment, doesn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. she goes to the balcony, was, doesn't she? Yeah, and I was just waiting for her to throw herself off it. <laughs> but that's what, you know, that, that's, that, I wouldn't have been surprised if that, that had happened during the film. And I think that was one of the things that kind of got me about it was that it was just, there was no chinks of light anywhere. Right. At I, all. I suppose just the irony didn't. being that perhaps that's, that is actually the moment of her escape. Because, yeah, you guess. know, it's quite possible he's not coming back. Mm-hmm. And that actually she she can breathe again, but it certainly doesn't feel like that. No, you don't. You don't. You don't sort of kind of. I think to be honest, that's a very that, that, that's that, that's you trying to make yourself feel better, James. <laughs> I think we both She's going to go back. There cry. must be some glimmer of hope. Sure. <laughs> no, no. I'm probably bring her mum who doesn't like her anyway. You know, it's just yeah. Yeah. She's probably think. one of those and people I... who says that their mum is their best friend. Yeah. Probably. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, love you, mum. But uh... yeah, 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 sorry. <laughs> I, will, I will. I will call this. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just feel terrible now. But um... we talked about. Uh, you mentioned the structure, James yeah. and uh, John Hopkins. He actually worked on Thunderball as well. Um, wrote some finishing touches on the screenplay, but he's the one that adapted his own play, this story of yours, uh, for this film. And from what I could read, um, the play was like neatly divided into three acts, where each act had an extended conversation between Johnson and another important character. And uh, these are, of course, in the film, but Lumet and Hopkins, they added a fourth, where the opening, like 45 minutes or so, they show this like step-by-step recreation of the investigation that kind of led to Baxter's arrest. And Mm. it also adds something distinctly cinematic to the story where we're not simply watching these, these bouts of monologues, but it sort of puts us more into the location as we've been talking about. And it adds a real like potency for sure. But I also feel like the most gripping aspects of the film is when the monologues get started and when we actually get these opinions thrown back towards one another and where they are really like battling with words. Oh, I would just kind of interject on that because the bit where they're looking for the girl and Sean Connery finds her Mm -hmm. is a very uncomfortable scene. Yeah. Because I was sort of thinking like, is he actually doing something to her? Yeah. Because the way it's shot, it was kind of, he's kind of trying to soothe her down. And it threw me completely because I was like, hang on a minute. I, I don't quite understand what's going on here. And I, I, when they kind of, when the rest of the police turn up, I thought they were going to kind of bust him for molesting her or something like that. Or, you know, I was kind of waiting for that to happen and they don't. And I think it's really important that you have that because it really does set the tone. Mm-hmm. for the rest of the film because it begins to you I, I i found myself constantly thinking back to that scene and i thought that was kind of really good a, a really good part of the adaption process a really good direction as well because the also, way sorry. yeah but the editing as well in that is so like so meticulous and so distinct in that he keeps some of the shots just a bit too long yeah. for it to yeah. be comfortable yeah, I mean, he has his hand around her throat at one stage and and it cuts to her hands like beating him on the chest and he's like trying to soothe her, and you're like sort of thinking, hang on a minute, hang on, hang on. And it, yeah. it, it, the tonally, and it, I, I think it kind of, it really threw me and made me feel very, very uncomfortable. And when he was kind of, I suppose the horror later during those monologues, when you can see him kind of struggling 
with this kind of thing inside him, I was like, oh, God, it makes sense now. And it made it all the more horrific because you realise how much on a knife edge he is mm-hmm. constantly. Is he just going to suddenly flip out and start becoming the person who, I, I suppose, inside he hates, but kind of really kind of, I don't know whether he kind of wants to become this person. I don't know. It's very kind of bizarre mm-hmm. thing. But, it, yeah, it, it threw me completely at those moments. And, like I say, I think it did add, a, it, it kind of got, because when you do, I mean, I don't know, have you ever seen Killer Joe? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realise that was based on the play and as I was watching it I was thinking this was very theatrical and I began to come to start to think about that a lot more and during this I mean I, I knew it was obviously a play going into it but I think it, it was definitely needed this to kind of break the monotony a little bit I'm not mm-hmm. saying those, those those kind of scenes where you know it is the kind of the monologues and whatnot and the talking but I think if the film was completely like that it would I think it'd be pretty much, I think it'd be too hard to get through. I think it needs this to kind of break it up and through obviously the tricks of cinema, kind of like you say, like editing and kind of keeping shots and, you know, just a few, a few kind of little character moments. I think it really did build, it, it, it lays the foundation for the Sean Connery character and it makes it, I think, a slightly richer film for it. And just how Lumet, he constantly gives us flashbacks to that scene, but they're always sort of different. It seems like yeah. his, his perverse thoughts are distorting what actually happened. Sure, and until you get to the point at the end when Baxter's sort of saying, you know, it's it, I'm not the problem, you're the problem, you're the one, yeah. you know, you're the one with all these horrible ideas and images and crimes in your head, don't project them onto me, you know, for thinking of them yourself, you know, that that's your problem, right? Is that your head is so full of awfulness, you know, and these despicable sort of images and crimes, you know, you're just looking for somebody to blame when when obviously you're the one with the problem. Yeah, but no, I think that, that scene, I was going to bring it up myself, actually, that scene is the, the great addition, I think, to the film, where, mm. you know, it is played so, it's so meticulously put together, but leaves it so ambiguous that you're just like, well, it's, you're almost thinking, hang on, am I imagining this? You know, yeah, am, totally. am I am I just a bit of a twisted fuck? Is the thing that you know maybe it's it's just a seventies style of doing things. You know that little girl maybe because he starts talking about the smile she's got on her face and why are you smile? Why have you got a smile on your face and things like that? And he 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 is very sort of confused in the moment and she's obviously scared. But then she starts smiling and like I said, like I said, you know, you are thinking, hang on a minute, you know, yeah, he's holding her a little bit too long. He's being a bit rough with her, but then he's being sort of weirdly sort of close to her mm-hmm. you know weirdly sort of comforting to her and then you're and then yeah you're left thinking well, did he though or was that just me thinking that and then you know <laughs> when it comes to later and and he's accused of you know projecting those very thoughts onto somebody else it's an incredibly sort of clever way of doing it um and i think yeah it really benefits it would be almost almost impossible to do on stage uh, but I think in the in the film here and the, the way that it is then alluded back to again and again and again, I think is absolute genius. No, totally. Um, it, like you said, I, I, perhaps sort of, I was watching it thinking, like you're saying, am I am I reading too much into this? You know, I felt guilty about it almost. Yeah. Like, um, uh, am, am I am I just so wrong in the head now? Am I just so cynical of everything that? I'm watching this thinking, hang on a minute, he's, what, what? You know, because that's why I, I said, I thought the cops were going to turn up and do it. I thought that was going to be the point of the story. Mm. He was going to get done for, you know, for molesting this child or what have you. And then it's like, yeah, it, it, it gets even worse because he's in the, she's obviously traumatised to hell. And he's like, don't sedate her, I want to talk to her. 
if we get to the hospital, this is all gone. You know, it's like, hang on a minute, mate. Give the girl a break. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you can't even, even, there's no humanity to him whatsoever. And you sort of wonder why he's kind of, he's so determined to get this guy. You know, what, what mm. kind of purpose is it serving? Sure, because yeah. it's not about it's not about salt cracking the case and solving the crime. It's a very sort of yeah, per- mean, personal sort of form of of uh, retribution that he's looking for, and obviously it's completely unattainable. Yeah, because I mean that's the thing when you watch a cop film, it's like Seven. You sort of think the point the point of Seven is that those two are going to get over their differences and sort the case out, and then they're going to walk off into the sunset, and it's going to be like, hey, buddy, yeah, you know, <laughs> we got him, and it isn't. No, at all. <laughs> Seven isn't that film. It's only two thirds of the way in what you think is going to be the point of the film, i.e., them finding out who Kevin Spacey is. He suddenly walks in and I'm giving myself up. You're like, what? And with this, <laughs> I was like thinking, right, the point of this film is he's going to find out who this serial child molester is. He's going to get over his demons and he might start talking to his wife with a little bit more respect. And that just never happened. <laughs> it's not that not, film. Not and even close. It, it gives, it gives you all the iconography of the cop film. You know, you've got the belligerence to his superiors. He's a maverick. He's, you know, he's this renegade. He's a heavy drinker. And you're thinking, ah, you know, here we go. It's the safety of genre convention. And the more it goes on, you're thinking, nope, this isn't anything like that. It's going more and more inward. And I love it when you kind of get kind of broadsided like that with films because you, mm. you genuinely don't know where this is going or what it's about. And I think that's it. it play, you, you kind of... In a way, you become even more transfixed by it, trying to work out what direction it's going in and what it's actually about. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, he's more like a sort of war veteran, and um, definitely, you know, yeah. and it's, this came out in '72, and it's directed by an American. You know, it's it it could be more than a little bit, I suppose, about about mm-hmm. the the kind of emotional problems you know Vietnam vets were having, or, you know, or any war veteran really, you know, coming back having seen unspeakable things and just being told to sort of shut up and get over it and mm. there's no way of doing it and he, you know and he's supposed to be the one sort of the moral high ground if you like or the moral barometer you know the one who can tell right from wrong and who can separate all of this stuff but he's got absolutely nowhere to turn except sort of to the bottle and ultimately you know into oblivion <laughs> through mm. through his <laughs> fists with uh, this Baxter guy so anything that deals with sort of the horrors the horrors of war or like Nick Cage's character in uh, bringing bringing out the dead or something like that, where he's just, just haunted by everything that he has seen and is unable mm. to unsee. And I love the scene where Johnson, he, the one we talked about where he goes home to his wife and slowly, but surely he starts talking to the memory of the girl that he found yeah, and not talking to his wife and how kind of that, that memory sort of seeps into his reality and you really see, like, his sanity beginning to unravel. Yeah, and you get those awful, like, cutaways to, like, the girl hanging in the tree. Yeah. <laughs> and you learn that she's been there for months, basically, and obviously the crow's about to go and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's weird when you kind of see editing like that because you are literally seeing someone's memories that's, you know, this isn't a flashback to events that have happened in the film. They don't really bear much, with, they, they don't have much to say. They're not to do with the narrative of the film at all. They're just pure character moments. And it's so sometimes, I mean, when it's done badly, you see it like stuff. I don't know, a film like Firefox with um, <laughs> Clint Eastwood film where he's like, he's tripping out over an arm. And he's like, you know, he's all kind of like, Ugh! and it, the camera goes wobbly. But with these, 
it's they're just these like really stark cutaways and you kind of go oh god what's that and they're almost like thinking well what am i seeing here and it makes it a, a far more psychological experience i think um because you are directly getting into his head and seeing what he's living with all the time and i I hesitate to say it makes him slightly more sympathetic, but you can't imagine that in this time the police have got, you know, if you, if you do and see one of these horrendous things, I can't imagine a psychologist can say, look, if you need to talk about anything, just, <laughs> just come by on Tuesday and we'll, we'll sort this out. <laughs> well, you know, well, that's what, but then that's what his wife tries and you see, you know, if you had a glimmer of sympathy for him, then you see that he's by doing exactly what he's supposed to do and exactly what she is asking for him to do, you know, to share, to, you know, to, to unburden himself with it. He uses that as a weapon against mm-hmm. her just by saying, okay, fine, you want to know what's going on? Here's what's going on. It's like Al Pacino in Heat. Um, you know, he does, has a sort of similar scene, but, but more shouty. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, he's like, okay, fine. You know, you want to share, here's, here's what my day was like. You know, all the, the dead hookers and, yeah, this rotting corpse in the... <laughs> In the, in the woods and everything like that. But in no way is he attempting to actually unburden himself and attempting to share. He's just uh, use, using it as a, as a way of further grinding her just like it, it, into dust and just saying how, how bloody awful she is, you know. And how hmm. um, I, I love how he just decides to have a go at her for just being ugly. <laughs> totally unprovoked, you know. They've probably been married, what, did you say 18 years or 16 years or something? Yeah. And then he's just like, what happened to you? You know. <laughs> it, 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 that, yeah, that scene is just awful. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's... It, it's... And I was sort of speechless, really, at how mean... Yeah, you sort of like, you know, obviously... He's James Bond, you know what I mean? I mean, I know the attitude to women isn't exactly kind of progressive, but this kind of takes it to a whole new level. And it's so unprovoked, like you say, and he's necking bit, and he just breaks that thing off the, off the drinks cabinet, and you have smashed your thing up. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, 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 bless her for sticking with him, but come on, love. It's time to, you know, he, he's done. And like I say, I mean, I, I thought as well, this is the other thing, where you don't really know. So I thought he was going to beat her up at one stage as well, mm-hmm. and I was getting really worried or sort of just thinking, God, you know, we don't have to go down the territory of nil by mouth now, surely. Mm. Just, uh, yeah, even any attempt at kind of, like, say, any attempt at kind of connecting on a humanitarian level is just completely brushed aside. But then, again, it kind of comes back to the way this, he's broken, isn't he? I mean, you see that. If, if you've got those images in your head all the time, how can you have a kind of normal life and just walk in and say, oh, hi, darling, you know, how much? Yeah, great, thanks. Should we put telly on? Well, yeah, we best do because the electricity's going to go off in two hours because of the strike. But, you know, come on, we'll have a good old night. Anyway, you, know, you just don't get that opinion. And that's why I think I, feel, I do feel a bit sorry for him because he's kind of, there's no support mechanisms there, is there, professionally. No. And you don't sort of think that when he has kind of, even if he has solved these cases or he hasn't solved these cases, it's made the world a better place. It's just mm. they've just been replaced by another horror. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I definitely felt some sympathy for him just in terms of him being completely isolated and dealing with all these horrendous uh, incidents by himself. And it seems like he's, the more he's experiencing, the more he's distancing himself from everyone else and completely like submerging himself into this work and he's unable to kind of distinguish 
the thing that the detective superintendent talks about where you're two persons and he seems unable to distinguish his police role from his private and personal role. Well, I mean, the other thing as well, obviously he has... He, I don't think I think, he's realised that he could be the person who's committing these crimes as well, mm-hmm. and he's trying to reconcile that in his head, and that's even more horrific, really, that mm-hmm. you've got someone who's so unstable, and clearly has this kind of coiled violence inside him, which we do see explode when he batters Baxter to death. But, but this is why I guess one of the kind of the points where I sort of deviate and sort of begin to look at him as a bit of a monster is that this is someone who needs to be incarcerated and kept out. Yeah, he's he is like I mean, there's that brilliant scene where they they're just going around rounding up men walking round the street. Yeah, yeah. Any any that's how Baxter's getting. Yeah, that, that guy like you know he's like oh that guy's walking along eating his chips. You haven't got any friends, you know. Who are you? And it's just like it's like it's this horrible, you know. But he he is that that he is the predator, you know. He is the danger out there, and it's him coming to terms with that as well. So yeah, it just it throws you completely. Yeah, I mean, because of course, I mean, what I love about the film is that you you do not know at all whether Baxter is the person who did it or not, and you know there, there isn't any evidence found or brought against him he would just happen to be sort of wandering around aimlessly you know he has dirt all over his hands and whatever and he seemed really sort of disorientated when they find when they found him and immediately they all kind of say oh yeah that is definitely him yeah this is definitely our guy and they bring Mm -hmm. him in but um at no point does he admit to anything or does you know do they actually find any kind of real evidence against him and it's, it's you know, and and it's almost like that. Obviously, that doesn't matter to Johnson. You know, he is convinced that it is him, and uh, you know, nothing is going to change that. Certainly not. Then, when Baxter starts sort of goading him later, but uh, mm. it just sort of it just further adds to sort of how terrifying the pol- the police in general ca- could be in this kind of situation where they can just haul somebody in, and once you're in, your chances of getting out are uh, next to nothing. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't you you wouldn't have much faith in the justice system <laughs> yeah. d- d- during this time. Which, if you were arrested, so like, oh god, here we go. But it kind of reminded me of Have you seen the film Prisoners? Yes. Which which was another two and a half hours of just <laughs> I just like, oh Christ, you know, this is this is t- too miserable. Where you it, everything becomes so ambiguous and blurred, you don't really know who the bad guys are and who the good guys are, and you, you sort of. It's a deep, I found that film very unsettling, and it was the same with this when he's kind of like so when he, get, when he gets to Baxter, and Baxter's not a likable person at all. They haven't made him out. There's nothing about him. You could, I mean, he's either if he is innocent, he's innocent and he's an asshole. If he is guilty, he's guilty and an asshole. You know, there's no. He's he's a thoroughly unpleasant, vile little rat mm. who probably deserves a bit of a slap. Oh, but, that moment, that moment when he starts laughing, you know, when yeah. um, Johnson asks him, "Oh, was your father a big man?" You know, as if he's yeah. trying to sort of psychoanalyze him for a moment. The way that he laughs, it's like Christoph Waltz in *Inglorious Bastards*. You know, at the end when he asks Diane Kruger what she did to her leg, and yeah. she's like, "Oh, I broke my leg skiing." And then you know, he just bursts into some sort of hysterical laughter in the most inappropriate manner for an uncomfortably long amount of time and it just completely sort of 
puts you on the back foot and you're like, okay, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with you when you're doing this. And for, mm-hmm. for I guess for a glimmer, you 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 that's when I kind of felt a little sympathy for for Sean Connery's character because that 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 was him trying to use his brain a little bit and and do a little sort of <laughs> psychological digging, bless him, you know. And I could see the connection myself, but um he's in immediately mocked by his own victim. And uh yeah, I just thought that was really really sort of well done and and completely sort of emotionally sort of compromises how you how you sort of felt about these characters up until that point. I think the the thing about Johnson for me is that he I don't know how much of a monster was in him before he started working as a policeman and just how much that has affected him because he is not fit to work in this kind of environment. It seems like he doesn't have the the abilities and like the the defenses necessary to deal with all the horrendous acts that he meets throughout his career. And there's this kind of feeling that how much how bad was Johnson before he started working as a policeman and how much was he made a monster out of his career and out of his horrendous experiences. I, I certainly think it's a case of the experiences have made the man. I'm not saying if he was a painter and decorator, it would be the life and soul of the party, but <laughs> I think this experience has just ground, ground him to dust, really. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those where this was always going to happen. I think that's one of the things as well that I take away from the, this film. It was only a matter of time before he broke down like this mm-hmm. and, and kind of had this I, I go, like, epiphany as to who, what, who he is really and what he has become. And I mean, it's always interesting because uh, the sign of good films when you think about the character long after it's gone. And I mean, I was thinking about well, what, what happened to him after this. Yeah, he's going to prison, isn't he? Let's be brutally honest with you. Sure. But, yeah, what's, how long is he going to go for? You know, what's going to happen to him? What, what kind of character what, what, is he going to turn into in prison? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's just it, it's as bleak as a film can be, really, because it doesn't offer you any sense of hope that there's any redemption in him. No. I think there's there's a confessional aspect to it, but I mean, one of the one of the, the, the I suppose the kind of genius things about this as well is that don't forget the, the end scene with. Baxter is also a flashback because we know that he's died. Yeah, there is an, an inevitability to that scene. We know where it's going. So the kind of the dramatic, I guess the the, the drama of is he going to beat him to death? Isn't he? Has been taken out of the scene. So it becomes completely confessional, where you're just listening to him talk and trying to kind of work this out in his head. And I I was just sort of sat there, kind of almost like the film had taken away the kind of like like we were discussing earlier. You you think that perhaps. The kind of the revelation in this film will be Baxter admitting it. He, you, you will show it, it will show him being right that in this bizarre way that he's been through all this horrible thing that Baxter will admit to it and he'll kill him and he doesn't. The only thing that really kind of admits is that he's a deeply disturbed, depraved person himself, mm-hmm. and mm. he Baxter becomes the vehicle by which he shows that to everybody. And he'll become that kind of he'll become that kind of nasty story in the office. Mm. And to me, that that's infinitely even more depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. It's, it's just, <laughs> it just makes it, you just sort of think, oh, God. It's, <laughs> de- it's denying you what you go for films for. It's like we were discussing before we came up, The Martian. Yeah. It's a really feel-good film. You know he's not going to die in that film. 
Sorry for anyone who hasn't seen the Martian. <laughs> but it's a really feel-good, bouncy film, and it gives you everything that a Hollywood film does. It, 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 you know, the ends are kind of a really kind of feel-good. You know, everything's great. And this is the polar opposite of that. It strips all expectation and convention away from what you think is a relatively safe genre, i.e. the cop genre, turns it completely psychological and doesn't even give you the... the the, this case remains open, really. Because yeah. if Baxter did do it, if Baxter did do it, no one's ever going to know. Well, that's it. So I mean, you, you've got kind of you're introduced to a character who is like, okay, this is the guy that's going to clean up the streets and take down the monster <laughs> in the community. And by the end of the film, you're just told that, oh, no, 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 this is the most monstrous person in the community. And <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way, that that child molester might still be out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have a good night. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's. Yeah. The he he said in a conversation with uh, the critic Glenn Kenny that you're kind of left in an emotional blue balls um, <laughs> state where it's not an emotion. Like he he said, it's not successful emotionally uh, because you don't get through to a really tragic conclusion. And maybe that's impossible given the character. But uh, for me, I kind of feel like that unfulfilling ending, that there is no conclusion to it, that kind of makes the film great for me. It's like this circular notion to it all that we'll be, we'll be kind of stuck in this loop, not knowing what happened and going through the crime over and over, never really getting a handle on it and further putting us in the mind of Johnson. It's like the ending of. I mean, did both of you watch The Wire? Yeah. Oh, I haven't I mean, seen like the, the end. end. I haven't seen. Oh. I haven't seen season uh, five. Well. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, let's just let's just backtrack then. Uh, what were we talking about? I, oh, I assume they clean up Baltimore and everything's fine, right? <laughs> it's rah rah, yes. yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Then, then, yeah. The film ends with um, statistics and like it's kind of like montage of like everyone just like holding hands and yeah, like parades and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you know it's, it, yeah it's great no well i suppose <laughs> um like the documentary cartel land we spoke just before we came on cartel land ends exactly where it began yes. with the fact that this i'm doing it again i've just brought you in cartel land <laughs> <laughs> it's a documentary it's fine it's real yeah, yeah, yeah um, it ends exactly where it begins with this complete kind of bleak kind of the, the, the gangs are coming back. You know, nothing's changed, and the world's still crap. And the offence dumps you where you began. Mm. The world's still horrible. It's still raining outside. This mm. guy still might be on the street. And from what we've seen from his career, there's probably even if they, if even if Baxter was the person who they they thought he was, there's probably another one just waiting in the wings to take over. Yeah. You know, like I say, no one's safe in this film. There's nowhere to hide, and. I, that in itself becomes slightly terrifying. I think probably one of the most interesting aspects that we already talked briefly about is Connery himself and just how how he completely goes into this role head-on, undaunting. And it's a role that requires such a display of like vulnerability and immense anger and guilt. And there's such a rawness present in him. And he's showing us this man who's having a mental breakdown, basically. Yet he never, I never feel that he goes like overboard with his explosiveness and the violent outburst. And there's a real 
nuance to this performance for me. Yeah, no, I think it's one of his very, very best performances, to be honest. It's a shame, in a way, that it was such a departure. You know, it was such a shock to those Mm. few people that did see it, I think, that it kind of never really got appreciated in the way that perhaps it should have been. Had Had he done, like, a few more films and worked up to this, I think he would have been sort of awarded for it and, and applauded for it, you know, a lot more rather than it just essentially sort of disappearing. It was just being sort of instantly rejected. I think it's incredibly, like you say, nuanced and vulnerable and, you know, terrifying all at the same time. And I'm not sure that he he was ever that sort of emotionally sort of committed again. No. I mean, he's, he's definitely one of those actors who's guilty of just being himself particularly mm-hmm. sort of in later years and i think there are very few films that are coming to mind where you really felt that he he did sort of become a, another character and this is certainly one of them hmm. don't forget zardos yeah well of course <laughs> he's definitely a different, yeah, the he's, one he's, two he's... punch of the offense <laughs> <and Zardos. laughs> the acting masterclass of the offense and then zardos you know to- totally and the thing is it's like he never breaks down and starts crying or anything like that. Mm. It's just this rage. And it's, it is, it is frankly terrifying. Like when he's holding Baxter's hand and just squeezing it and you can set, you can see just by watching it, he really, really genuinely squeezing that guy's hand. There's no kind of getting around it. He mm. probably was hurting him quite a lot. And he has this kind of, it, it's the look of him as well. He, he has that kind of, Obviously, I'm a Crystal Palace fan, and for anyone who remembers the Malcolm Allison era, he dressed a little bit like that, and I've probably lost a great deal of people by even saying Crystal Palace Malcolm Allison. <laughs> I just glazed <laughs> over. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, take my word for it. He looks a bit like Malcolm Allison, who, who was manager of Crystal Palace, but it's this kind of, you know, that kind of fur coat and the hat, and even seeing him in a pub mm. drinking beer. You know, you're, you're so used to seeing him, you know, he's Marte, Volca Martini, whatever. And in this, you, you kind of... Like I said, he blends in so well with the bleakness in the surrounding, and that comes through the performance. You, you can believe totally in the way he's acting. He's he's a product of the world that he's in, and when you see him, like there's there's a bit where he's talking to Baxter, and you see him like pointing off in the distance, talking to someone who's not in the room, and then he comes back, and it's terrifying. He looks completely unhinged, yet all just manages to keep it in the realms where it's believably scary. Mm. He's not like turning into Wolverine and you know smash stuff. It's just it's just there, and that's what's infinitely is so makes it so frightening for me. Mm. And what kind of Connery? Because there are a couple of scenes where he he's on the brink of like breaking down emotionally, where he, he's kind of wrestling with these two forces of coming to terms with himself and still wanting to suppress that kind of darker side of his human nature. And that's kind of the, fear, the side he fears. But you can see this like battle of conscience going on in his head. And I, just that, that completely complex emotional performance that he gives, uh, I, I, I'm quite amazed a lot of it is helped by the cinematography. There's a lot of sort of split focus during mm-hmm. the film where yeah. you get you get Connery's face in like extreme close up on one side, almost sort of you're way too close, disturbingly close, where you can really kind of sort of see how 
you get get a sense of what's going on inside it. And and that the other, you know, the rest of the the frame is filled in focus as well. And you're like, that's what we should be looking at, you know. Mm-hmm. But in, but instead, you've got this kind of looming Zardoz esque floating head um, in sort of the <laughs> other side of the screen. It's all connected, and yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just incredibly unsettling as as he is falling apart. That you know, we are so up close. And I suppose you could read it, but almost as we're so close and yet we still have no idea what's inside his head or that mm. just the, the way that his his face, way that he sort of moves his face and it sort of twitches his face a little bit, you're, you're like, okay, under the surface there is, uh, you know, dark and horrible things I do not want to get to know better. I mean, watch the scene where it, he's, it's at the end where he punches Baxter for the first time and it goes into slow motion and he like throws his coat across the room and then starts running across to punch him. And in slow motion, yeah, someone, I, went, I went on this, uh, I, was, I was doing this, this film every week for the NHS and the cameraman I was working with said, he went, everything looks better in slow motion. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, can, I can kind of see that. Things do look kind of cool. And when I was watching it, I thought, in this case, it doesn't look better in slow motion. It looks about a thousand times more terrifying in slow <laughs> motion because his eye, he kind of like grimaces and kind of grinds his teeth. And just, you, you can tell, in that moment, he probably did really want to punch that guy. And it's one of the best screen punches I've ever seen. Because sometimes when you see films, especially kind of superhero films, violence doesn't ring true to me anymore a lot of the time. I sort of, I don't, I don't feel the kind of the visceral nature of it. And in this, he punched him full on. And you know it really hurt. Well, it looks like it really hurts. And it feels real. And just, I was watching it, again, I must have watched this, that's about five times yesterday. He just never takes his eyes off Baxter. And he's like, it's, he looks demonic. And it's, you know, like you say, it's, it's, I guess the slow motion, you can just pick up the nuance and the, the coiled anger going on inside him. And like you say, you know, it's a pretty great performance. I, I think there's no kind of escaping from that. And it's a shame it doesn't kind of get the recognition, I guess, that it deserves. And I think... What you said, James, that the film is really like supporting his performance and that it isn't afraid of depicting these horrendous and like sober events in a real sort of investigative manner. It's really working for us to understand the logic behind Johnson's thinking and his transformation. And it doesn't veer away from like difficult difficult areas or grey areas, but it embraces that sort of ambiguity and it embraces the the difficulty that Johnson is going through, really. Sure. I mean, for something that is based on a stage play, which was essentially three two-handers, you know, which you see as him and his wife, then him and the detective, you know, the superintendent, and then him and Baxter, it, mm. it becomes incredibly cinematic through, like, the cinematography, through the superimposition of... That big light, the big light that's yeah, in, that yeah, hangs yeah. in the hangs in the interrogation room over the opening and over the closing, you know, sort of quite literally foreshadowing what's going to happen, uh, or the claustrophobia is going to happen. I mean, I think the the score is also incredibly sort of unsettling and sort of adds to the tense, adds to sort of this sense of sort of claustrophobia and um, you know disorientation. Yeah, that was uh, Harrison Burt whistle, his only score actually. Uh, yeah, that wonderful atmospheric score. 
Yeah, I mean, all of all of these elements, and of course, you know, you you have Sidney Lumet, you know, but behind the camera, who you know is renowned as one of the best sort of actors, directors who who was ever uh, it was ever ever worked really, certainly in American cinema, and um, mm. yeah, I mean, it, it comes together as this kind of perfect package. You know, there's no there's no meat. I mean, there's no sort of fat on this film at all. It's incredibly lean. Everything has a very very specific purpose and it mm-hmm. you know it's it's not overlong in any way nothing really drags on and it has this very complex um sort of time structure so that yeah like you're saying it, it's of it, you're rec- you're recounting things and you're seeing things again as so as it goes on in, in various sort of different contexts as it go you mean you see that what is the opening scene you end up seeing that sort of three or four times don't you but before yeah. the end of the film <clears throat> Um, you know, there is no, there's no mistaking the fact that there is an incredible sort of craftsman, sort of at work here, and uh, yeah, gets fantastic performances from from everybody really. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's Sean Connery's show, but ba- Ian Ian is it Ian Bannon who played um, Baxter is uh, is terrific as well to go mm-hmm. sort of toe to toe with him and to be so awful. You know, you know, a character that's supposedly supposed to be sort of demanding our sympathies. <clears throat> he is just himself, just this completely sort of unlikable, let's like say, weaselly kind of character. Vivian Merchant as his wife it is again great at being this sort of pathetic, <laughs> pathetic <laughs> victim. You know, which apparently was Conjured. not was not too far from her um, her real life situation. Sadly, I think she was. Married to was it Harold Pinter or someone like that at the time? God. And uh, yeah, she she sort of suffered a sort of similar a similar experience in her real life not long after this, I think. Oh, and wow. then uh, yeah, obviously Trevor Howard, you know, bit of bit of acting royalty comes into yeah. sort of play the, the detective superintendent as well, you know, and he's obviously obviously knows what he's doing. So yeah, uh, yeah no, I th- I think it's it's an incredibly sort of well put together film as well as being one that has this incredible performance in it. Mm. It's one of those ones as well where I don't know when I'm going to go back to the event. Right. I, I, I can't see it being... I, I, I know, you know, I really, really like... I, I mean, I love it, actually, but it's one of those where I think... I, I'd probably be like, oh god, the offence of the Martian, the offence of the Martian, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, oh god, you know, the Martian. And it's it's it's, 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 it's I mean, it demands to be watched again. I think, yeah, and, and it's a, yeah, it's a masterclass in all things cinematic, and how it, it's I, it's just so. I mean, Lemet is one of those directors that every time I watch his films, I always think, God, I don't, I don't really appreciate how good he is. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not the most, I guess, like visually flashy of directors, is he? I, I, I think this is one of his most, like, yeah, yeah, formally formally uh, interesting films in yeah. that he really tries to embrace different sort of uh, techniques no totally and it, it's strange because it's like sort of watching I think god he, he's so good at Sidney Lumet yeah <clears throat> and I, I just don't I feel like I should give him more credit or I should appreciate him all the more and I, it's the same thing I have every time I watch films and when I was watching this I was like I've only seen it I saw it years ago before I watched it again and I thought god this, this really is Possibly one of his best films, and I, I, I don't know. Perhaps I kind of have a, a strange sense of kind of because it's set in Britain. I feel like I should kind of root for it more or something like that. And <laughs> I actually, I mean, 
as much as I moan about the crappy weather, I, I, I do <laughs> love it in a kind of strange kind of way. And it's a film that kind of embraces that. It's, it's interesting to me as well, because I think when you look at Sid Lumet's career, he's, he does make, he seems to be someone who can kind of straddle all kinds of sides of films. He'll make something like this and he makes something like Network, which is kind of, I say, not so much a glossy ensemble, but it's a very Hollywood film, I think, Network, in, in so sure. many regards. And then he can, he, kind of, he can flip that and make something like this. And it's, it, people like Steven Spielberg, you know, they kind of tend to stick to a same type of film. Tonally, I think there's a kind of a sentimentality to people like that. So with Silly Met, he, he seems to be able to kind of do different tones and different styles and different <laughs> stories so well with such kind of professionalism that it's just, I, I need to watch more of his films. Mm. I think he's made like over 50 films or something. Yeah. Uh, and before prolific. that, he's, he was like a prolific TV director. So oh, yeah, I he did really like a see... decade of TV, didn't he, before he even started? Yeah. And. <clears throat> I mean, just a quick one. Watch. Have you either of you seen Failsafe? I don't no. think so, actually. It's it's Doctor Strange Love, but serious. It's, <laughs> okay. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I think it actually came out before Doctor Strange Love as well, if, if memory serves. It but... looks like right around the same time, but yeah. Yeah, watch that, and then yeah, cry yourself to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's it's horrendous. But the films I've seen of Lumet, they, I think I've seen about eight or ten of them, and mostly they deal with these sort of antagonistic, sort of uh, against society type of people that are really, they have these mm, personal issues that they are really struggling with these darker sides of themselves. Yeah, that, it's like 12 Angry Men, isn't it? You yeah. Know, got the guy, you know. Or Dog Day Afternoon, or, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but no, he's but uh, yeah, but it, as you said, he's like he's made so many films that uh, uh, I would imagine that there are films that out there that are uh, quite different from one another. He's not making like ET over and over again. Oh, yeah, no, sure. So, I mean, you look. He went from the offense straight to Serpico, and then between Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, he did Murder on the Orient Express, which yeah. is just such a kind of sort of lavish old school studio kind of romp with mm-hmm. like is it Lauren Bacall and Albert Finney and obviously Sean Connery's in it again and you know it's Ingrid Bergman is in it didn't Ingrid Bergman won an Oscar for it or something or was nominated I think for she it did, yeah. um, it's it's quite insane how versatile he was you know how he can go from you know arguably two of the best Al Pacino driven films of the 70s to this mm. An Albert Phineas Hercule Poirot on a train <laughs> on the train in the middle of sort of Eastern Europe or wherever. Um, Have either of you two read uh, his book? Um, I think it's called On Directing. No, no. It's like a 150, 200 page book, but it's really, really good. Where he goes through many of, he's recounting many of his uh, experiences making different films up and through uh, 60s and 70s and 80s. Up until the Prince Prince of the City, I think. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, really good. Uh, highly recommended. No, definitely. I'll check that out. One thing I really wanted to notice that goes kind of along with what we're talking about now is that opening sequence, even before he starts showing us the like English uh, schools and whatnot, is the slow motion sequence starting the film. 
yeah. where he kind of mutes all the diegetic sound. We get this this lovely score that we've been talking about where kind of the, the dark undertones of that score really grab you by the throat. And the visuals, they are kind of distorted and just the effect of all these technical things that he's mashing together it really gives us a tangible kind of suspense and horror that really it really puts me in place immediately yeah and in that moment i mean i think that first shot is you see him sort of fending off the other cops mm-hmm. yeah don't you in the interrogation room and so you know if if you didn't know anything about this film going in you'd be like okay well he's 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 the criminal you know he's mm. he's upsetting you know he's trying to escape or he's trying to cause some trouble in the, in the cop shop or whatever he's doing you know you have no idea what it has and i think that's deliberate i think they're trying to present him as you know this is the villain mm-hmm. if yeah. you like you know to- literally almost sort of cartoon style or old batman tv show style you know tossing these uh these police constables one way and the other and he's just like standing there fists clenched covered in blood and you're like okay who the hell is this guy and then it's revealed Oh, he's actually, you know, one, it's supposed to be the he's good, the good guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. Well, we're in for a fun time then. <laughs> and it's that, that I mean, the, the interrogation room as well. Again, I mean, I, it's the most bizarrest looking, but you've got like a stack of chairs in one corner, then you've got this weird light, and he kind of keeps that light, doesn't he, on the middle of the image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's this really, you sort of like thinking, what, what is that? And like, it's, it's almost like a kind of a dreamy type nightmare sequence. Well, I think wasn't the art director one of the Bond? He he worked on some I Bond films so, yeah. as well because yeah. it feels almost like something out of Doctor No's underground cave or something. <laughs> it was like yeah, all we rescued was this lamp. Okay, well we'll we'll put it in there. And uh, it, there's something very sort of '60s sci-fi. I thought about yeah. the design of that lamp that seems so strangely out of place. Mm. And also. Um... Stunt choreographer uh, Bob Simmons. He actually worked uh, uncredited on some of the action scenes here. Oh, okay, right. yeah. Another Bond uh, connection there. Connery's fighting coach or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so Jan, if you have any like closing thoughts on the offence as a film, it's one of them. I, I can definitely recommend it. I really love it. I don't know when I'm going to go back to it. Um, I think it might be one of those where I have to kind of psych myself up for for it a little bit, but. I think I can see it becoming one of those films where I'm going to recommend it to a lot of people. I, I can't wait. I know some exactly who I'm going to give it to, but it has to kind of come with some caveats, which is just prepare yourself for a descent into misery. And when you kind of go on in, in those kind of knowing that perhaps in advance, it might kind of, I don't know, act as something of a little bit of a, a primer because like I, said, I thought I was going to be watching it when I first saw it. I thought I was going to be watching this kind of cop solving the crime thing, and it isn't that at all. It's something a lot, a lot bleak and a lot more interesting. I think it's a. I, I don't know how to classify it in terms of a genre, which mm. to me is a, a good a, a good sign really for a film because it kind of shows that it's doing something that's very unique and very interesting. And yeah, just slightly prepare yourself. I think because this is a, uh, it's. I wouldn't say it's one hell of a ride. It's a hell, basically, would be my how I would how I'd think about it. Yeah, James, what about you? Yeah, no, I think Tom put it very, very well indeed. I'm I'm thrilled that this is now available because I think it's a film that has been sort of off a lot of people's radars for for way too long. 
Um, yeah, no, I think I've watched it about three times this year now because oh uh, I remember I reviewed it when it came out, uh, which was back in May <clears throat> or end of April, I think it was actually that it came out, and so I probably watched it twice then, and uh, and again this week just in preparation for this episode. And yeah, I mean, there is no doubt about it. It is not. It's not a fun time, but it's an incredible sort of, and it's not a, a police procedural, even, even though the first act kind of sets it up that maybe it will be. You know, mm. it, this really is just the dissection of a character who has, is fighting a losing battle against his inner demons, and this is just watching him completely implode and then explode, really. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a fantastic Sean Connery performance. It really is up there as one of his very, very best. It's incredible to see uh, his his efforts to distance himself from the James Bond role. You know, you, you, you see all these uh, interviews at the moment with Daniel Craig saying that he doesn't want to do James Bond anymore. And part of that obviously is just fatigue of having just spent the last two years doing another one. But, you know, if this is what you have to do, if you're, because I, I think really Sean Connery is the only actor who has successfully managed to survive beyond being James Bond. And you yeah. essentially have to nuke your career first and do some do things like this and like Zardoz and uh, ride it out, really. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's an incredibly intense film. Um, Sidney Lumet fans should love it. It's a very accurate depiction of 70s Britain, as we've been saying as well. So watch it for that as well. But but yeah, be prepared. It is it, it is quite an ordeal, but, but a rewarding one. <laughs> Yeah, rewarding. That's definitely what I come away with. Every time I watch this, I I'm so enamored by like Lamette's directing style and the editing and Connery's like unique performance that you're kind of the more you give attention to it, the more you pick up on different like slight nuances in the filmmaking and in the acting performances. The more you kind of understand and go deeper into that like dark hole that the film wants you to fall down. And it's just an, a unique experience to watch this kind of film, I think. Uh, not a very pleasant one, but a unique nonetheless. So definitely one of my favourite releases in the Master Cinema Library. I didn't get a chance to watch any of the interviews uh, preparing for this one. Uh, did any of you guys get there? I didn't actually know. I didn't actually have time yesterday, but... I, I definitely want to watch them, though. I think I'll yeah. check them out. Yeah, I, I watched them back in April when I reviewed it, and um, I remember the interviews being... They're kind of secondary players, the the, the, mm-hmm. the crew members who are being interviewed. Uh, I think they do have an interview with Harrison Whistle um, about, his, about his score, but other than that, it's <clears throat> sort of the assistant art director and the guy who hold the paint pots for the person who was doing the painting or and the director of the original stage production and people like that so people who are associated with the production but not necessarily sort of the key players um yeah. like obviously there's no Sidney Lumet interview although there is something in the booklet there's no of course no Sean Connery which would have been fantastic to to have him talk candidly now about why he wanted to do this and what his mentality was yeah. going, going into this project would be absolutely fantastic. But you know, he doesn't want to do anything. He likes to play golf, so. Yeah. He likes to play golf. That said, there are some really good anecdotes about Connery 
you know, they, I think they've realised that what these people can do is without jeopardising their own careers. You know, it's, it's obviously a long time after the fact. They they do tell some good stories about what it was like hanging out with Connery and and you know being on set with him and that. So so it is definitely worth worth going working your way through them. Mm. The the transfer itself, I think it looks really quite good uh, for a seventies film. Um, not too uh, scrubbed up or anything, uh, keeps the grain, and uh, it's really, really a dark picture. So uh, there, there are times where you're kind of struggling to see what's really going on, but I think that's the intention behind it all. Well, I mean, I, I watched it on the old projector, and I have to say, it was actually brilliant. This film, um, it, it was, it was like watching a film, if that makes any sense. Not mm-hmm. a Blu-ray. I felt like I was watching a, a film being projected in. Um, it, yeah, I, I think it, it looks great. I think they've done, like I said, it's always important to keep what's there and to be kind of um, faithful to the original elements, and they have done it. It's, the, only, the only thing is, I think the sound was a little bit, it could have been a bit louder, and mm-hmm. then did have, you know, the, the volume pumped up, as it were, and it was at times um, a little bit hard to hear what was going on, but overall, I think it's a, a, a great-looking transfer, and, uh, yeah, definitely one of one of the best ones I've seen for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can start um, wrapping up. So, James, what's uh, in the future for you as a critic? Um, kind of all sorts. I'm doing a lot, sort of a lot more stuff locally these days. Um, I'm on the ra- radio every week, talking about the new releases, and I'm getting some reviews published in the local newspaper here. Well, on their on their website at least, mm. on a weekly basis. So that's taking up a lot of my time. I'm still obviously writing for Twitch and occasionally for Screen International, which is all good fun. Um, but that's that's the most of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've taken sort of a year off from festival travel at the moment to try and, uh, well, make some money. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I have my own copywriting business as well, so I've just been, you know, building that up as a an actual business. So yeah. that's that's taken that sort of time away. But, yeah, no, I'm still doing a lot of work on a regular basis. So uh, I think the easiest thing to do is just follow me on Twitter, really, um, at Marshy00, and everything I do gets pumped through there. So that's the easiest thing to do. And the the Society for Film, is that still going? Uh, The the podcast is... uh, We haven't done one for a while, and I'm not sure if we are going to anymore, just because it just became a logistical nightmare, really, because... Uh, Fernando is based in Tokyo and I'm in Hong Kong and just finding time to sort of sit down every week. I mean, you guys, you guys do it. So I don't know what I'm complaining about, (laughs) but we were trying to do it every week and you do, you do one a month, right? Which I think might be. Well, it's supposed to be twice a month, but uh, yeah, okay. it speaks to the difficulty of sitting down. So Uh, you you guys know what I mean. You know, it's, it's an incredible logistical problem and, uh, you know, I don't think we've made a formal announcement, but and I'm not sure if I want this to be it. But <laughs> <laughs> we are on extended hiatus, but the site is still yeah. up and running, and we're still publishing review. I think Fernando is at the Tokyo International Film Festival right now, and is planning to review a bunch of stuff. So the site is still going. Okay, great. And Tom, what about you? Um, yeah, you can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com. Follow me on Twitter at 24framecast. I have got loads of episodes in the works and I've recorded bits and pieces of that, but fortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, at the moment, um, my work is mentally busy, which is why I've missed a few episodes of this, actually. I'm currently making um, what will be 
the Manchester version of Corey and Ascrazi. So it's Manchester Squad. Oh, wow. Working at the moment. So I'm currently literally, if, if, if you see me in Manchester hold by a camera looking miserable as sin, doing a time lapse picture, standing, filming people, walking three hours at a time, and learning how to do things called hyperlapsing on stills. Basically losing my mind trying to do things which will amount to about three minutes of film. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently just doing that at the moment, all kinds of crazy stuff. And as fun as it is, it, it, the glamour of filmmaking um, very quickly evaporates. And uh, I've been <laughs> sort of seconded off as well to make lots of films about the NHS at the moment, which basically um, consists of going to cancer patients' houses, talking about how basically their care has been kind of pulled away from them. And yeah, so to say it's been quite depressing filmmaking at the moment and challenging would be, be an understatement. But obviously it's great because what I want to do, but unfortunately I don't have the time to kind of sit down and uh, do other film-related things. But hopefully, hopefully things should start clearing up so I should be able to appear more regularly. But yeah, that's kind of where I am at the moment. Great. Uh, and listeners, you can reach us at mastercinemacast at gmail.com uh, and find us on Twitter, MOC underscore cast, uh, or on Facebook, uh, Master Cinemacast. And you can also uh, head over to our website, mastercinemacast.blogspot.com. Oh, um, um, can I just say one more thing, actually? Yeah. If you are listening to this and you're a composer and you want to work for free and you want to um, <laughs> make some music for my Manchester Quartzy film, please do get in contact. I would love to hear from you. Great. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for downloading this episode. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.